Well, in any military engagement, U.S. armed forces do not go out alone, and nor do they go out ill-equipped. They don't go out alone. They don't go out ill-equipped. The Navy doesn't send one aircraft carrier out. The Navy sends out an entire strike group. And each part of that strike group is equipped with defensive and offensive equipment. The Air Force doesn't send out one F-35. They send out a fighter squadron. And those F-35s are equipped to the gills with stealth technology and advanced weaponry. The Army and Marines don't send out one soldier. They send out an entire group of soldiers. And each soldier is fully kitted out. Soldiers don't patrol in their jeans and a t-shirt. They have a flak jacket. They have helmets. They have firearms. Oftentimes in between 70 to 100 pounds of gear. War is waged together. And war is waged with the right equipment. Which brings us to our passage this morning where the Apostle Paul tells us that we, Christians, are in the midst of a war. Paul tells us we're engaged in fierce combat against the enemy of our souls. And if we're to stand against the wiles of the devil who seeks to destroy our souls... If we're to stand against him and if we're to walk worthy of the calling as the church of Jesus Christ, we must, brothers and sisters, make use of the full armor of God. Open up your Bibles and let's read our passage for this morning and then we're just going to dive into the parts. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And we'll read through the end of the book, 24. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing to Caicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith 
From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. First thing I want you to notice are the first words in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This is a call to, to, uh, to, to be strong and to stand firm. Paul uses be strong here. He uses stand or some variation of that in the next several verses. In 11, stand against the schemes of the devil. In 13, having done all, stand firm. In 14, stand therefore. So stand, you know, stand, stand, stand. So this is a battle cry. This is a rallying cry. This is, this is the siren going off, alerting soldiers to arms. And this is the last thing Paul has to say before he signs off on this letter. Finally, is how the verse begins, right? This is his last exhortation he has for us in the whole section of Ephesians that's focused on exhortation, chapters 4 through 6. Now, why is this last word a call to battle readiness? Why is this last word a word about warfare? I want you to remember the context of Ephesians. God has done two incredible things through Jesus Christ. First, he's given us peace with God. The message of the Bible is that all of humanity, no matter how good we are, no matter how much we accomplish, no matter how earnest we are to live honorably, All of us are wayward sinners. We do not love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, mind, and strength, which is what he requires of us as our creator. And so we're at odds with him. Ephesians 2 describes us like this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Humanity is not at peace with God. (laughs) By the way, that's why we don't feel at peace. The the, The reason we don't feel at peace is because we actually aren't at peace with our Creator. But Jesus has acted to rectify that problem. Ephesians 2 again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So God acted in Christ to take us who were at odds with him and give us peace with him. That's number one. Second incredible things in Ephesians is that Ephesians drives home this reality that those reconciled to God are brought together in the church. So the church of Jesus has this otherworldly, supernatural oneness. 
Not because everybody has an identical background, not because everybody has an identical race or personality or interests or political persuasion. It's this spiritual oneness in Jesus Christ. And that's why he goes on to talk about how Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in the church. So, so used to, it was the Jews over here, Gentiles over there, now they're together. They've become one new man, Ephesians 2. Together through Christ, they're God's new temple, Ephesians chapter 2. Through union with Christ, they are part of one body, the body of Christ here on earth, with Christ the resurrected Lord in heaven as our head. And this spiritual unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 3 calls it, is fleshed out for us in Ephesians 4 through 6. Shepherds, pastors, equip the saints for the work of ministry, largely through teaching the Word of God, which results in the body building itself up in love and growing towards unity and maturity. Ephesians 4, 12 and 13. Every member walks worthy of their calling as members of the church and gets bummed out when something happens to another. Like Reuben, poor guy. See you, buddy. But every member walks worthy of their calling as members of Christ's church. So we walk in love towards one another, 5-1. We walk in the light towards one another, 5-8. We walk in wisdom, 5-15. Wives and husbands, children and parents, bondservants and masters, all embrace their God-given roles and responsibilities. So you read through Ephesians 4-6 through 6 and you think, this is beautiful. This is awesome. This is the church as she's supposed to be. But that's the rub. That's the rub. This is the church as she's supposed to be. Depending on how long you've been around or your own personal inclination towards being a glass half full guy or a glass half empty guy. You could also walk away from Ephesians 4 through 6 and 4 through 6 thinking Well, that's a pretty picture, but that's not real life. That's a pretty picture, but that's not real life. Church splits are real life. Christians jealous towards one another, that's real life. Unreconciled relationships, that's real life. Broken marriages, that's real life. So let's ask the question. If Paul paints such an awesome and beautiful picture Why is it often not a reality? Because we have a formidable enemy. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And look at how formidable this enemy is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This is a briefing from the Apostle Paul on the enemy we face as a church. It's a cosmic enemy. So not flesh and blood. The full array of demonic activity in the heavenly places. It's a powerful enemy. So not one to be taken lightly or underestimated. Cosmic 
powers over this present darkness. And it's a pitched battle. We, we wrestle, the text says. You ever watched a wrestling match, a good one? You ever wrestle yourself? It's not child's play, it's intense. Now, Jesus has conquered these enemies. You, you actually need to know that. It's not as though King Jesus and the devil and his minions are at war, and who knows who's going to win. That is not the case. Jesus has already won. He struck the head of the serpent on the cross. It was a mortal blow. Ephesians 4 says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives in his train, the demonic powers he defeated. And yet, the devil has not conceded defeat. Although his time is short, although his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him, we sang. He is furious, he hates God, he hates God's people, and he is determined to take as many down with him as he can. Honestly, church, we cannot take this lightly. Sometimes we ignore the reality of this cosmic enemy. We don't think about it. We don't acknowledge it. We don't speak about it. We act and behave as if he weren't a threat to us. We read passages like 1 Peter 5.8 that says he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and it has no effect on us as though we think he's not coming for us. Other times we think about him in childish ways, silly ways really. We get a flat tire. The devil put the, the, the nail in the road. We're late to work. Well, the devil was behind the traffic. Thinking about him like this just shows he's... He's already got the advantage over us because we underestimate him. Brothers and sisters, the devil doesn't give a rip about flat tires. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy our church. And he is very good at devising means to accomplish his ends. Do you know what he's behind? Do you know what he's underneath? Do you know what he's influencing? Leaders falling. If he can get a leader to fall through moral failure, through doctrinal drift, he can take down a ton of Christians in the church. Would you pray for me? For our elders? Division. Relational division. If he can get just enough people to be bothered. Now, not too bothered, mind you, because then they might actually talk and reconcile. But just enough bothered to where they can tell themselves they're fine with the other person, but really they're not. If he can get enough of that, he can sap the display of Christ's love right out of a church. And he loves doing that. How about division over secondary matters? If he can get enough people fired up with each other over COVID or politics, he's going to suck the joy, peace, and unity right out of a church. That was one of my biggest fears last year. Missional confusion and drift. He wants churches focused primarily on societal matters. For those who trend left towards social justice. For those who trend right towards Christian nationalism. He wants a church focused on those things and not the actual mission of the church, which is to make disciples through the proclamation of the gospel. Speaking of, he's... Behind gospel confusion, gospel drift. What is the gospel? He wants churches to believe a therapeutic gospel. That Jesus came to give you wellness. So pervasive in our culture right now, that idea of wellness. Where do you go that you don't see it? 
beware of importing that into your heart and thinking that that's what Jesus came to give you. A prosperity gospel. Jesus came to make you healthy and wealthy. The devil wants the emphasis off of God's holiness, our sin, and Christ's sacrifice on the cross to pay for it as our true need and our true treasure. He loves immoral thoughts. Immoral thoughts in God's people that start small, that are coddled and grow over time. And eventually, if he has his way, bursts forth into our lives, wreaking chaos in our family, wreaking chaos in our church. He loves to isolate. You know what? You're the only one that can't get yourself together. You are the only one that struggles with that sin. You are the only one. Don't talk about it. Don't confess it. Don't ask your brothers and sisters for prayer. They won't understand you. He loves that stuff. He loves to discourage. You've done it again? Really? God's angry with you. Don't go to the foot of the cross and look at the Savior. You've done that too many times. Don't sing at church before you get yourself in a better place. Don't pray. He won't hear. No, you need to get your act together before you go back to God. He loves that. He loves to lie about God. He loves to implant these thoughts in our minds that God is not for us, that God does not love us, that God's ways are not best. He is a liar and keep in mind his end. He wants to chew you up and spit you out. He wants to turn you out of the path of life. He wants to destroy your soul. And brothers and sisters, it's not really a question of do we take the bait? It's like how often do we take it? And how long is it before we realize we've taken it? And how quickly do we turn to God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? I honestly hope that you're intimidated. I hope that you honestly are troubled and a bit afraid. If you are not, you do not have enough respect for your enemy. He is masterful. And so how do we stand against him? I'm glad you asked. We stand against him through the armor he provides for us. Read again with me just beginning in 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul describes the armor of the typical Roman soldier of his day. Every piece, belt that holds everything in place, the breastplate which guards his vital organs, shoes, shield, helmet, sword. This is a battle-ready Roman and by way of metaphor of a battle-ready Christian. But I want you to see something else. Paul doesn't envision a single Christian here. So all of the commands here are plural. Fasten the belt, 
put on the breastplate, take up the shield, every one of them, plural. This isn't addressed to a singular Christian. This is addressed to a whole platoon. Christians assembled as a church. So what's the point? It's really obvious. We fight together. So let's understand the armor and let's understand its application. Six, six pieces. The belt of truth. What's the belt of truth? Uh, two things. Objectively, it's the truth of God. It's the revelation of God in Christ. It's the revelation of God in Scripture. It's the truth that dispels the devil's lies and sets us free, both when we first become a Christian and as we continue on the path of life. It's the truth. Uh, Second, and, and subjectively or experientially, it's truthfulness in our character. It's truthfulness in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we speak with one another. Chapter 5 of verse 25 says, Put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members one of another. Listen, there is no way that we are going to stand against our enemy if we're not committed to the truth objectively. Like, there really is a God. He really has revealed himself. He really is good. Like, that's true. And we're also not going to be able to stand unless we live with one another truthfully. Like, like be truthful with your brothers and sisters about the state of your soul. Like, be truthful about the sin that still has its way with you. So that we can help you apply the gospel and walk in victory. Like, be, be truthful about what's going on at home in your marriage with the kids. Open up the window so that the fresh air of hope and grace can blow in. Be truthful. The devil is unbelievable at tricking us with all sorts of lies, but when we speak the truth in love, we dispel them. The breastplate of righteousness. Similar to truth... Uh, Thinking about this objectively, this is the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness we have is not a righteousness of our own making. The righteousness we have is a righteousness that's given to us. It's, It's conferred upon us by another. It's the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that God gives to us the moment we repent and trust in his Son. But then, of course, that righteousness must be worked out in our lives. We do not have Christ's righteousness and then live unrighteously. So in Ephesians 4.22, Paul says, Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt, and put on the new self. Put on righteousness, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And think about how important this real-time righteousness is to the body. Church, your sin doesn't just affect you individually. It affects the church. So 1 Corinthians 5, a passage on church discipline. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Our individual sins, whether we know it or not, they have a negative effect on the entire church. An extreme example of this is Achan. Who who remembers Achan? 
Read that and tremble. He coveted what God forbid, and as a result, all of Israel suffered at the hands of the Canaanites because of his one sin. The readiness given by the gospel of peace. Just take a look back at verse 15. Take a look there. Notice, notice what it doesn't say. It actually doesn't say, as shoes for your feet put on the gospel. It doesn't say that. It says, as shoes for your feet put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So we put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What does that mean? It means we're to be ready and eager to share the gospel. One commentator says it like this, quote, Paul has in mind the joyful proclamation of the gospel, a readiness for active propagation of the gospel, which is the most effective means of combating satanic powers. I think of the passage that Paul quotes in Isaiah, and he, he quotes it in Romans ten fifteen. Do you remember what it says? He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes in salvation, who says who publishes salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Church, we're to be eager. We're to be eager, we're to be focused, and we're to be a busy about proclaiming the gospel of peace. The gospel that brings us peace with God, the gospel that brings us peace with man, the gospel that removes the hostility between us and God, and the gospel that removes hostility between us and one another. And <laughs> doesn't the devil love hostility? He loves to keep sinners separated from God, isolated from God. Believing lies about God. He loves that because that protects his failing and falling kingdom. But when we proclaim the gospel, we plunder his kingdom. And we snatch those held captive by him. And we free them from his oppressive reign. He loves hostility between sinners of God, sinners and God. And he loves hostility in the church. If he can sow enough seeds of discord in the church, that church will become totally ineffective in her mission. That church cannot charge the gates of hell. It looks more like there's hell in that church. Which is why we've got to proclaim the gospel to one another. The gospel protects us from this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put far away from you be kind towards one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, 432. That's the gospel of peace right there. We proclaim it and we apply it to ourselves in church life in order to forgive and in order to be at peace. We put on the readiness of the gospel, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. The shield of faith is the promises of God and His Word that we lay hold of to quench the fiery darts of our adversary. Our adversary is consistently and persistently all the time sending a barrage of darts our way. What are those darts? It could be all sorts of things. Reminders of past sins that inflame our conscience with false guilt. So those of you who have been with us for Pilgrim's Progress on Wednesday nights... This is what Apollyon did with Christian, right? He reminded him of all the wrong he'd done along the way. He 
argued that he had no hope of entering the celestial city because of everything that he's done. And what did Christian say in response? (laughs) He said, you're right. I've done every single one of those things. I've done all of it. But I've been forgiven by the Lord of the land for all of that. You see, he, he laid claims on the promises of God. He took up the shield of faith against the accusations of the devil designed to sideline him from the fight. The devil's accusations could be many other things. Unsought thoughts of doubt. Do you ever have thoughts of doubt that somehow just like find their way into your mind and heart and and you did not seek them? He particularly does this in times of trial. He puts unsought seeds of doubt into our mind about God's goodness. It could be unsought thoughts of disobedience. It could be unsought thoughts of lust, of rebellion, of malice. More subtly, if if he can just get us distracted by taking our eyes off the war we're in and just get us more focused on consumption and ease, like upgrading the car, like upgrading the house, like focusing on the promotion, like thinking the next stage in life is what's going to make this one better. He is so good. His darts are focused on whatever will get us off a wartime mentality. His darts are focused on whatever will sideline us from effective service to the Lord Jesus. His darts are focused on distracting, diverting, disengaging, and ultimately destroying. And he doesn't do it in one fell swoop. That would be way too obvious. It's more like death by a thousand subtle pinpricks. Church, we will only survive if we take up the shield of faith. If we persistently cling to the promises of God, the truth of God's word, and apply them to the particular moment we're in. The helmet of salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. So, commentators go back and forth on whether or not this is that measure of salvation we already have. So forgiveness, deliverance from Satan's bondage, adoption into his family. Or if it's the confident expectation of full salvation on the last day. So resurrection glory, Christ's likeness in heaven. To be honest, whichever one it is, or possibly both, the point is the same. What protects the church and what enables her to hold up our head with confidence and joy is the fact that we are saved. It's the fact that salvation has already been accomplished by God. Jesus Christ has crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and so we can put the helmet of salvation on our head. This battle of life is so fierce but this battle is the Lord's. We are His and what does He promise the church? the gates of hell will not prevail against you. And so we take up the helmet of salvation. And then we take the sword of the Spirit. Take a look at the latter half of verse 17. After the helmet of salvation, it says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the final piece of armor. It's an offensive weapon. It's a sword. And it's the Word of God. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Ephesians, or excuse me, Hebrews 4.12. So church, this is our weapon. Soldiers have M16s. We have the word of God. But unlike M16s, the word of God doesn't simply kill. Unlike M16s, the word of God kills in order to make alive. It wounds in order to make whole. The word of God is designed by God to teach us about the truth of God, the truth about ourselves, and it's designed to save and sanctify, and it is unbelievably effective. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So brothers and sisters, may we never individually or corporately take our Bibles for granted. May we never tire of reading our Bibles, reflecting on our Bibles, discussing it in home groups over lunch or over coffee with one another, memorizing it, praying through it, of hearing it preached. May we repent when we're disinterested. May we never have more interest in hearing and applying the wisdom of the world to our lives than understanding and applying the wisdom of God through His Word to our lives. May our Bibles be like a worn out pair of boots falling apart at the seams from overuse. This is our armor. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, The readiness given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. This is our battle kit that God gives us so that together we can stand firm against the wiles of our adversary. But there is one more important thing. Prayer. Look at verses 18 and 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chain, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is not part of the armor. But Paul mentions it here because it's a foundational and continuous activity that pervades our spiritual warfare. I just want you to notice the pervasiveness of prayer. Pray at all times. Pray with all perseverance and supplication. Keep alert with all perseverance. Make supplication for all the saints. All, all, all. Prayer is pervasive. Prayer is tied to perseverance. And I want you to notice just who and what Paul instructs us to pray for. Pray for who? All the saints. So instructive. All the saints. So our prayers are not about me, myself, and I. We pray for all the saints. Now, can and should we pray for ourselves? Of course we should. 
But that should not be the only thing we pray for. In fact, I would say to you, it shouldn't be the majority of what we pray for. We should be praying for one another. For all the saints. For our brothers and sisters. And look at what Paul wants us to pray for for him. Pray for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He's asking for prayers that he proclaim the gospel boldly. There could not be a better wartime focus. Like a good soldier, Paul has missile lock on the mission. And he asks the church to pray that he'd be bold in accomplishing it. So I just wonder about our prayers. I think we should take these two simple points and just kind of let them be a diagnostic for us. So ask yourself this, if you're a note taker, just write down this question. Who do our prayers focus on? Who do our prayers focus on? If I were to guess for you, and shamefully if I were to confess for myself, oftentimes they're quite self-centered. Oftentimes the horizon that burdens us in prayer goes no further than the burdens that weigh on our hearts. And for what do we pray? What's the substance of our prayers? What petitions and supplications are we bringing before our God and King? Are they prayers related to the mission? Are they prayers related to the fight? Not not the fight for comfort. The fight for the progress of the gospel. The mission the Lord's given to us as a church to make and train disciples. Are you praying for boldness for yourself? Are you praying for boldness for your brothers and sisters? Are you praying for sinners to be saved through the ministries of our church? So is your prayer life stagnant? When you pray, do you feel like you're faxing something to heaven? Who even knows what a fax machine is is anymore? It might be, if you feel like this, it might be because you've taken something designed to connect soldiers on the front line of a battle to headquarters and you've turned it into an intercom system in a big house and you're asking for a Coke and popcorn to be brought to you from the kitchen. It's from John Viper's book on missions. He gives this powerful illustration and he rightly chides us as the American church for our lack of focus on gospel mission. So often we are just focused on ourselves and how we feel. No wonder our prayers seem to go nowhere. In 21 through 24, Paul concludes the letter. He's writing this from jail. The Ephesians are likely concerned for him. He's going to send to Caicos to give them an update and encourage them. And then he signs off. Peace be to the brothers. Peace. So such a significant focus in this book, right? Peace with God. Peace with each other. And love with faith faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So my hope is that you see that Paul isn't that that pie-in-the-sky Christian. The beautiful and breathtaking vistas of what God has done for the church and how the church is to respond to Him looking through that world in rose-colored glasses. So Paul knows 
that the exhortations that we're called to live out in 4 through 6 are not easy. He knows that. He's not looking at everything through rose-colored glasses. That's why he closes the letter the way he closes the letter. The Christian life is war, and if we're to stand against the wiles of the devil and walk worthy of our calling, we must deploy the full armor of God. So how should you respond? To non-Christians... You're actually part of this war, but maybe not how you'd initially think. Where are you? Well, you're the devil's captive. Now, you don't think of yourself like that. You think you're free, and you think you're doing your own thing. And you think that because the devil has deceived you, and he is a wonderful liar. But you are actually captive by him, and your end is death. But freedom is available to you. And life is available to you. Jesus died and rose to free you from your captivity. Jesus died and rose to pay the price for your defection, your willing defection from God. He has paid the price for your sin if you will but repent and believe. And church, to you, some of you need confidence this morning. Some of you feel defeated right now, discouraged right now. For whatever reason, some of you feel as though real victory, real improvement, real change is just not for you. Some of you think the way it is is just the way it is. Some of you are miserable and some of you make others miserable. Brother, sister, remember... Jesus Christ has conquered the enemy of your soul and he gives you everything you need to walk worthy of your calling. If Jesus was victorious, if he gives to us the armor that we need, then get up. Get up and be confident and believe That victory and improvement and change is not only possible, it's promised. Believe that. Some of you just need confidence this morning. Some of you need to be shaken out of your slumber. Some of you come every week, listen every week, but it's like you're spiritually asleep. It's like the truths of God's word don't penetrate your heart. They skip over it like rocks skipping on the surface of a lake. No penetration. I pray that you would snap out of it. This slumber is from the enemy of your soul. And this slumber is a tactic to deaden you. To numb you. To the glory of God, the promises of the gospel, the preciousness of your faith in Jesus, and the joy of being a Christian. Some of you are isolated. For whatever reason, some of you are isolated from the safety that comes from involvement in the church. By that, I don't mean to say that you don't come. You come. But in terms of real engagement, in terms of real involvement, in terms of real service, real investment... You're, you're really off on your own and you do your own thing. Church for you is something you do. It's not a band of brothers upon whom you depend for your life. You're isolated. Do you know what that's like? It's like a soldier engaging the enemy on his own. That's crazy. 
And then some of you think mostly about yourself. So some of you think about church in terms of getting instead of giving. So whether getting fed on Sunday mornings or getting relationships that satisfy you or getting the ministry activity that you're interested, it's getting and you're involved to the degree that you get, but you are not involved much more beyond that. But church is intended to be giving. Giving your time by serving in Awana. Giving rides to those who can't get themselves to church. Giving meals to those who need it. Giving yourself to home group consistently for the benefit of the group. Giving yourself in prayer for others. Giving your heart to others. Giving, not getting, is what makes us effective in gospel ministry. Imagine our gospel impotence if the preponderance of us are looking out for ourselves instead of looking out for our fellow soldiers while we're sitting ducks. I praise God that this doesn't characterize many of you, but some of you it does. And I pray that you would see that you are in danger. Don't isolate yourself, brothers and sisters. Be awakened from your slumber, brothers and sisters. Don't think about this place and this people in terms of getting. Think about it in terms of giving. Because we are in a war. And the only way we are going to be victorious against the enemy of our souls is if we fight together and with the gospel equipment he's given us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given to us all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for this armor, Father. And we pray, God, that you would give us grace to engage as you would have us to engage for our well-being, for the well-being of the church, for the mission of the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.